I'm reminded regularly that I owe my parents an apology. Any of you with me? I owe them an apology probably for how difficult I was to raise. I've told some of those stories from up here before. Somebody in my family used to say I was either going to end up being a pastor or in prison. So that turned out okay, I guess. But that's not the apology that I'm talking about, really. Um, I'm a dad of three beautiful, wonderful, funny, delightful, infuriating children. I have added a foster kiddo to the mix, and I owe my parents an apology for not fully understanding maybe the depth of how ridiculous parenting can get sometimes. Uh, My circumstances has changed a little bit, and as my circumstance changed, my perspective changed. You know, I catch myself saying the very words that my parents said that I promised I would never say, let alone believe at the core of my being. You know, I have said, don't make me pull this car over, and I have meant it. I have said, money doesn't grow on trees. I have said, close the door, we're not air conditioning the neighborhood. I said that like two days ago. I have said, is every light on in the entire house, even though I probably turned half of them on? And I have said, I don't know, ask your mother. Like a thousand times last week. Like, it is something that comes up regularly in our house. And I've realized that perspective can actually change how you view a situation quite a bit. My perspective has changed from being a kid to being a parent, right? And I think differently, actually about things like air conditioning and finances and turning on and off the lights in the house. Now, we're in this series that we're going through the book of Revelation, and we're calling it Spoiler Alert. And I think the concept of perspective is actually really important when it comes to reading the last book of the Bible. I recently asked somebody, actually, have they ever read the book of Revelation? And they said, yeah, it's terrifying. And then somebody else, that same day I asked, have you ever read the book of Revelation? They said, yeah, I find it incredibly comforting. What would cause one person to think it's terrifying and another person to think it's comforting? And I think it's that word, it's perspective. Now, the section of Revelation we're going to talk about today is pretty epic. And it's scary, and it's weird, and it's awesome, and it's sad, and it's inspiring, all rolled up at the same time. So we're going to try to give some perspective to what we're talking about today and see how maybe that perspective can help us understand this book of Revelation. Now remember, last week, Jerry talked about the heavenly throne room of God. It's a, one of my favorite sections of the Bible. And we heard about this scroll that only the Lamb of God, Jesus, is worthy to open. And this week, we're going to talk about what happens when he opens it. So this section we're going to talk about, maybe you've heard of this before, maybe the Great Tribulation. I like to call it this, three cycles of seven divine judgments. I'm really fun at parties. I promise that I am. I'm really fun. But in the middle of this book of Revelation, there are three sets of seven. So there are are a set of seven seals, not like seals, not like that, like seals like on an envelope. Uh, There are seven trumpets, kind of like the do-do-do-do kind, but think more cornucopia, there's stuff inside the trumpets. And then there are seven bowls. And John talks about all three of these seven. And what's important, I think, is there are three cycles, three sets of seven. And seven, if you remember, we've talked about that a couple of times, but it kind of indicates completeness. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven represent something very literal, something that's already happened in the past, maybe something that's happening right now or in the future. But I want to point out before we dig in that each of these, you know, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are woven together together. 
they kind of overlap. So I think a great way to describe that is uh, the concept of nesting dolls, Russian dolls. You ever heard of, heard of those? You know, there's the big one, and then there's a little one, and there's a little one, and there's a little one, and then there's the one that you can't find because your kids, like, lost it or whatever. Like, that's kind of what nesting dolls are. They all kind of fit together. And so that's kind of how these work, too. These seven actually fit into these seven. The trumpets actually come out of the seals, you know, things like that. So they all go together, and here's the point we need to keep the perspective that these cycles work together. We're talking about the same thing all morning. And so spoiler alert, these you know, seals and trumpets and bowls all end the same way. They end with the final judgment of the world. Dun, dun, dun. Like that's how it ends. So I believe that John is actually using the three sets of seven to illustrate that final judgment from three different perspectives, describing the same thing from three different perspectives. So to break that down, here's an example of that. If you ask my wife, Abby, who is Adam? Actually, do not ask my wife, Abby, who is Adam. That is a terrifying thing. I have no idea what she will say, how cantankerous she would be. But in my world, she would say, oh, Adam's my husband or whatever. Okay. So if you ask Adam, uh, if you ask Abby, who is Adam? She says, he's my husband. If you ask my kids, they might say what? Uh, this is not a trick question. Dad. Yeah. They would say, dad, if I ask some of you, this is a terrifying example. I don't want to ask you guys at all. I'm not opening it up for the room for this one. But if I asked you, maybe you'd say pastor or a friend or, you know, something like that. So three different perspectives about the same thing. Abby sees me as a husband. My kids see me as dad. Maybe you see me as a friend or a pastor or something like that. So you understand how you can view the same thing from three different perspectives. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dig in to the first two of the seven that we uh, are talking about. We're going to talk about the seals and the trumpets today. And we're going to dig in. This is Revelation 6, starting in verse 1. Hold on to your britches. As I watched, the lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. The lamb, anytime it's talking about the lamb, it's Jesus. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, come. We talked about that a little bit last week. And I looked up and saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. And he rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. And I don't know whether you know it or not, but we just read about the first of the four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Have you ever heard that phrase? We've got a picture of it. We actually looked for a bunch of different pictures. They're all too scary to show. But here's, here's why I want to point this out. So these guys are in a lot of different things, right? In literature and movies, video games. But we're going to slow down and we're going to remember that John wrote this letter to real people in a real place, you know, Asia Minor, to real churches, the seven churches. And they would have been familiar with the Roman military. They would have been familiar with seeing people riding on horseback and having like swords and spears and bows and arrows and, and stuff like that. So they understand what this is rooted in, the image that this is rooted in. So the first seal is broken and out comes a horseman. And that's the first kind of the horseman of the apocalypse. So I was thinking about how do we kind of explain this? How do we, how do we go about talking about these things? And I thought, well, let's kind of play with kind of that nesting doll idea. So this is the first one. This is the first seal. This is the horseman conquest. Conquest. Okay. 
Now, conquest is scary. That's a scary word, right? Some people say that this horseman of the apocalypse is the Antichrist. Have you heard that word before? Antichrist. Now, it's important to understand that the word Antichrist is not in the book of Revelation at all. I might surprise some of you. And here's what Antichrist means. It means anti-Christ. <laughs> That's what it means. So what, 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 what's the point of that? Well, the point is there are a lot of people who are actually against Christ, right? It's not just one individual. Antichrist does, it is in the Bible. It's in you know, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. But the point is, hey, anybody who's against Christ could be called an antichrist and don't go around calling people antichrists, okay? It's not particularly helpful. Like if your spouse doesn't do the dishes, don't be like, you antichrist. It's not, a, it's not a good way to kind of navigate things, okay? But the point is, hey, this is conquest. Conquest is alluring. It actually is, is kind of, you know, he comes in on a white horse, which represents maybe this illusion of goodness. It looks like he's royalty and stuff like that, but he's particularly scary. And so some people are talking about, okay, well, is this the Antichrist? Because there is somebody in the conversation about the end of the world that will rise up against every aspect of Jesus and every follower of Jesus. And people have been trying to figure out who the Antichrist is for a really long time. So I did like a fun little exercise and I just Googled like, who is the Antichrist? And turns out it's like all sorts of people. Like the Pope and the Pope before this Pope and the Pope before that and the Pope before that, all of them, apparently. Like I found pretty much an article about every single president of the United States, no matter what you think politically, apparently they're the Antichrist. Uh, One I thought was particularly interesting was Harry S. Truman and their reasoning was because he was the president when the atomic bombs were, were dropped. So they had some reasoning and I thought, I mean, Hitler might be a better example. I don't know. That's just shooting from the hip a little bit. But, you know, Stalin, all sorts of different people. And turns out we've been incorrect every single time we're trying to figure out who it is. So maybe, just maybe, the point isn't trying to figure out who it is. Maybe the point is these horsemen of the apocalypse seek to rule the world and distract people from Jesus, and he's against Christ. So that's the first seal conquest. The second one is war. The third horseman of the apocalypse is famine. And the fourth one is death. And if you read, and these all go together, you see kind of how they do go together. And when you read this, they're described similarly in the book of Revelation. So the seal is opened and a horse of a different color comes out. Is that where that term comes from? Have you heard that term, horse of a different color? No, it's not where the term comes from. It actually comes from Shakespeare. I am a nerd. I'm so sorry about that. But the point is, okay, you see, this is getting bad. Conquest uses war and famine and death to just decimate. And this is kind of the judgment of God happening. And then the seal number five is martyred believers. You know, people who are following Jesus. This is Revelation 6, 9. We'll jump over here and read that for you. When the lamb Jesus broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar 
the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. What does that mean? Well, being under the altar means under the protection of the altar. This could mean literal martyrs. I think it includes that. I think it also means really anyone who has surrendered their life, sacrificed their life for Jesus. So that includes all of us. And it means that, hey, we're under the protection of God and the word of God, which is Jesus. And so these martyrs are in a bad situation, right? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so they cry out to God. And they say, how much more misery do we have to endure? How much more death? How much more famine? How much more war? How much more conquest do we have to live through? And God says, hey, I hear you, but rest in me, I will provide. But he also says, there's going to be a little bit more conquest and war and famine and death before everything is said and done. And then the next seal is open, the sixth seal, and there was an earthquake and the sun is blotted out of the sky and the moon was as red as blood. I mean, this is like movie you know, type of imagery. The sky fell, people ran and hid, they were terrified. And this is describing the day of judgment, or sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is an Old Testament reference. It's in Isaiah 1 and 2, Joel 2. It's the final countdown. You are all thinking it. Every single one of you are. Don't look at me like that. All right. So a side note, I'm going to be talking a lot about different books of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is the first half of the Bible. Here's the point. I'm kind of throwing them out really to indicate that all of that was actually talking about terms that they would have been familiar with. They're talking about letters or prophets or things in the Bible that they would have known. Maybe it's a little bit harder for us to keep track of that. But remember, they didn't really have the entirety of the New Testament when John wrote this. So they had the Old Testament and they read from it all the time and they would have understood all of that. So the day of judgment comes and then Revelation 6.16, check this out. And they cried to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. This is it. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? That is a fantastic question. Who is able to survive? Who can stand up against conquest or war or famine or death? I feel that in my bones today. Do you? Sometimes I have the honor of officiating a funeral and there are questions that people ask and they're usually not about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If they were, that'd be awesome. That'd be fun. But they ask things like, Why is death so terrible? Why did it happen like this? Why does God allow this pain? That's our version of who is able to survive. Because death seems pretty powerful today in our lives from our perspective. Pain in our lives seems pretty powerful from our perspective. Struggle and divorce rates are high and anxiety is more prevalent than ever before. And who is able to navigate this? Who is able to survive when so many have seemed lost in this spiritual war? And then John 
causes everything. I mean, he's right smack dab in the middle of all these seals and he doesn't go straight to the seventh seal. He says, no, I'll tell you who is able to survive. I'll answer the question. And then John sees a vision within a vision. So it's kind of like inception vision you know, type of thing. So John sees an angel, messenger from God, with a signet ring. And that indicates that he has the authority from God, that God has given him that authority. And that angel comes and gives a mark of protection to those who follow Jesus. And John hears the number of all of these people who are marked by that seal of that protection. And the number is 144,000. It's actually a military census that happens a lot in the Old Testament. It's like from Numbers chapter 1. And here's this military census and that there are 12,000 people from each of the tribes of Israel that made up the kind of people of God for most of the Old Testament. So what in the world does that mean? And some people take that literally. Well, okay, there are 144,000 people and they'll all kind of get punched in the head with the ring and they'll be good to go. But I think because the numbers are in perfect alignment, 12,000 from each tribe, I think these numbers represent, they symbolize completeness. They, they symbolize the entire universal church, everyone who follows Jesus. And here's one of the reasons I think that, because that's what he hears, but this is what he sees. Check this out. This is Revelation 7, 9. So after this, John saw a vast crowd, too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. He didn't just see people from Israel, did he? He saw all of us. So who can survive? Remember, he's answering the question. People who follow Jesus is his answer because of what Jesus, because of what the lamb has already done. And this is what this group of people is saying. This is verse 10. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation, safety, being saved comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the lamb. And remember what we were just talking about. Conquest and war and famine and death. Have you experienced any of that in your life? Are things difficult? Maybe you're grieving right in the middle of death, war, famine, conquest, we're reminded that Jesus conquered all of those things. It's already done. The battle's already won. And that we're safe and we're saved because of what he did. And this is how chapter 7 ends. And it ends with a punch. This is verse 17. For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. My youngest daughter, Ainsley, is four. And recently, my wife, Abby, was out of town. And in the middle of the night, I felt like these cold as ice feet on my back. And apparently, Ainsley was like, hey, I'm a little scared, and I'm going to go crawl into bed with Dad. And I guess she'd been there for a while because she was snoring. And there's nothing more cute or infuriating than a four-year-old snoring. So I kind of woke up. It was a little early, but I woke up and she was still asleep, but I was moving around the room, you know, stuff like that. And I think that woke her up. And Ainsley reached out to me and she said something that's super cute. She said, daddy, don't go. You make me feel safe. That's cute, right? That's the perspective of a child with maybe their heavenly father. We could have that same perspective. 
See, he loves us so much that he wipes every, every, every single tear away. In the middle of the judgment, in the middle of the end of the world, we're reminded we're loved so much that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know if there's something difficult weighing you down. Does it feel like your world is crashing in? Does it feel like it's the end of the world for you? Maybe addiction has a hold on you. Maybe that depression is just weighty. Maybe the marriage is crumbling. Maybe the finances or fear or whatever rule in your life and you're crying out to God and he hears you. And even though your world feels like it's at the end, God will wipe every tear from your eye like a father making his child feel safe. That's the image here. So six seals are broken, four horsemen of the apocalypse, martyred believers, the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. All of it is building up to this seventh seal being broken. The scroll is finally going to be opened. And so this is what happens. Okay, the the seventh seal is opened and we just rewind the whole thing. We just go, we go back because we're going to do that exact same story, maybe from a slightly different perspective. Here are the trumpets. Nesting dolls, remember? And he goes back to the beginning of the judgment, and he tells it again, but this time he tells it slightly differently, using a story that people in the Old Testament would have been really, really familiar with. He tells it from the book of Exodus. And the story of Pharaoh and the Israelites who were enslaved and let my people go, you know, and all that type of stuff was from, was from the book of Exodus. And a big part of the book of Exodus are plagues. And so he kind of tells the story with the plagues and he says, okay, so there's hail and then there's blood and then there's poisoned water. You might remember that in that book of, of Exodus, you know, the water turned to blood. There's darkness. That's a big part of that story. And then there are demon locusts. It's my personal favorite. <laughs> I encourage you to read that Ridge Reading Challenge because this is gnarly, right? It, the interpretation of this is nuts. So then he goes and he kind of gets the next one out and it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse again come out. And so this is all bad stuff, right? Just like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, it's kind of the same story, different characters, same characters, different examples. It's just different perspectives. And John is pointing out at the end of the world, here's the point. He's saying people will have an opportunity to repent. And that's a big part of the story of Exodus and Pharaoh. So if you repent, you literally turn away from the bad and you go towards the good You repent, you say, I'm wrong, you're right. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. And the point is, John is saying, look, just like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, who was given an opportunity and then did not repent, judgment alone doesn't always bring people back to God. So what do we do? Where is the hope in this? And just like he did with the seals, he stops right here and he pauses after the sixth trumpet and he interrupts the story and he does the same thing he has a vision within a vision and an angel brings the unsealed scroll that they just opened and John is told to eat it 
which is weird, but it's also an Old Testament reference. And something happens in the Old Testament that's actually in the book of Ezekiel. And so it's this parallel and John pops it into his mouth. And I don't know what was in that scroll, but he starts to see stuff as if like the stuff he's already seen isn't weird enough. He sees two visions. Here they are. Here's the first one. He sees kind of God's temple and the martyrs by the altar of the temple. And he's told to measure everything. And that's an image of protection and perfection from the Old Testament Zechariah 2. And then the outer courts of the temple aren't included and they get trampled. So what does that mean? Well, some people think it's literally talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. I think it's more likely it's talking about the new temple that's a symbol for God's people, the church. Which means his followers will suffer persecution. It's not going to be easy, but... That won't change the fact that Jesus already conquered death on the cross. Does that vision sound familiar? Because it's almost exactly the same as the first vision in the seals. Now here's the second vision. He has a vision of two witnesses that are representatives telling others about Jesus. And people argue about who these two guys are too. And some people think it's literal, you know, it's people from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. But John uses quite a bit of imagery here. Here's my best guess. I don't know, but... I think it's likely representing followers of Jesus who are calling out to people to follow Jesus. It's the church being the church. And all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. That's an image from Daniel 7. And the beast kills the witnesses, but God brings them back to life immediately. And the end result is a lot of people do turn back to Jesus. And then it's the last one and the seventh trumpet comes out and it's that Deo judgment again. You see the parallels here? So the last trumpet sounds, it brings the day of judgment and this is an action-packed couple of chapters. And that's just two out of the three cycles. We're not even going to do the third one today. I know you're looking at your watches. It's okay. (laughs) But it's really important, I think, to understand What is the point? Because we make all of this other stuff the point, don't we? What's the point? And we've already talked about one of the points I think John is making. God loves us so much that he will wipe every single tear from our eyes. And this builds into what I want to make sure we understand today. So John opens this scroll and the message of the scroll is the exact center of the book of Revelation. And that just indicates It's pretty important. And the message in the scroll is, see if this sounds familiar to you. Jesus died on the cross, rose again on the third day to conquer death. And because of what he's done, we have eternity with God in heaven if we believe in him. Everyone wondered what the point of Revelation is? It's the same point as everything else. That's the point of Revelation, and that's really what we've been talking about today. So here's the big idea. Here are these parallels that are built on each other, and it's not what we think at first glance because we get so distracted by, like, horsemen and, you know, that fun stuff. But here it is. God's love is shown to and through followers of Jesus, a.k.a. the church. That's the point of this section. It's a lot of information we've talked about, I know, but the point of the seals and the horsemen and the trumpets, oh my, is God's love is shown to us 
His grace abounds to us. He loves us so much he will wipe every tear from our eye. And he encourages us to then imitate the lamb, imitate Jesus, and show that same love to everyone else we ever come into contact with. See, in the end, there are some people who don't respond to God and they don't turn back to him, but there are many who do turn back to God. And the consistent theme is the lamb, Jesus, conquers death and conquest and war and famine. Jesus conquers his enemies by loving them, so much so that he would show his love for them by dying for them. And then he encourages us to do the same. Maybe not what we thought it was about. God's love is so clear to those who follow Jesus because he literally saves them. And these trumpets and seals and visions remind us not only that we're loved by the creator of the universe, the beginning and the end, the author of everything, but we're also called to imitate Jesus, imitate the lamb, to show sacrificial love to others. Love God Love others like the whole New Testament. This is like the most masterful game of paying it forward. It's through the church that God chooses to help bring people back to him. Through the love of imperfect people like me and you who need saving, going on to point to the person who can do the saving. So when you read this section, or maybe when you read the book of Revelation, you can read it from two different perspectives. Here's perspective number one. You can read it from the against Jesus perspective. So that's somebody who gets really caught up into all the judgment stuff, and they don't remember that this book is actually about hope, not destruction. And here's perspective number two. It's for the people who follow Jesus. And yes, there are some scary things talked about in here and persecution and suffering. But this perspective from a follower of Jesus means that the one who rules the heavens and the earth is the one who loves you. There should be so much hope when we read this. So much peace that comes from this. That even in the middle of the end of the world, God will wipe every tear from your eyes. Even in the midst of judgment and suffering and conquest and famine, God will give us a way out. That even in the midst of the worst and the terrifying, God has already won the battle because of what Jesus did on the cross. And the thing is, we have the opportunity to choose the perspective to respond to the hope. Which one is it for you? I'd like to pray for us. Heavenly Father, help us keep our eyes focused on who you are and what you're about. That in the same breath, judgment and love can be uttered. In the same breath, judgment and hope can be uttered. In the same breath, judgment and peace can be uttered because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's the same story. Thank you for the battle already being won. And thank you for the fact that you use us imperfect people to share your story over and over and over again until the end. And thank you for this opportunity we have to have hope right smack dab in the middle 
of the hard stuff in our lives. That because of who you are, we're victorious, not because of anything we did, but because of how great you are. Thank you for the way that you provide for us, love us, and help us live this hope out. Help us love our neighbor in such a way that it is sacrificial and it is radical, but not because of what we are or do, because of who you are. We surrender all of this to you. And we are thankful that that battle has already been won. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.